you'll take your Bibles and turn to Leviticus if you're not already there, Leviticus chapter 19. And as you're turning there, um, I haven't publicly done this, but I like to I like to do this. I'm really encouraged. It's good to see Jason and Avery with us. Uh, Jason is uh, no stranger to us growing up here. Of course, his mom and dad till uh, still come here. Uh, Jason and Avery are going to tie the knot. When is it? When's the date again? July, July 18th. And so it's good to have uh, them here. Avery, you can still get out now. Just joking. No. Uh, great couple. And uh, they just returned from Thailand from a trip to see part of. Is it your grandmother, Avery, that's over there? Was it your grandmother? My grandma was here, family. family over in Thailand. So they were able to, to be them, and they're back from there. So Jason was able to meet the extended family and elephants. And other things that he was able to do over there, that's pretty cool. So I just wanted to say publicly congratulations to the two of you. We're behind you guys. We'll be praying for you. And uh, we love you and excited for uh, the union that you'll have in Christ. So that's really neat. So I just wanted to say that publicly. You should now be in the Gospel of Leviticus. And uh, we're going to be there in chapter 19. Now, as I, uh, if you're you're visiting with us... um, we take God's word line by line, and uh, we take it as a whole, and we like to start in chapter 1, verse 1, and go all the way through till the end, because we like to take the, the, uh, the different themes and the different thoughts, the theology, and we like to see it as a whole. We think that's um, the best way to look at the whole text, and so uh, it helps us to grow, to see, the, see it connects, and then it helps us to see also Jesus in a better way instead of just these topical, at times topical things are good to address. Um, but we are able to do that. Uh, so that's where we are, and currently we're in the Gospel of Leviticus. You say, wait a minute, isn't there only four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? No, that's not true. There are many Gospels, because all of the Bible points to Jesus. Every book of the Bible points to Jesus. As a matter of fact, Genesis chapter 3 is the first mention of Jesus. It's the first mention of the Gospel. And the rest of the book, it goes all the way till the end, where when we're going to be with Jesus, when there's no more tears and no more crying or anything like that. I can't wait for the day. And the whole book is about Jesus. And so, it's all the gospel. If you don't have a Bible, um, you're welcome to look. We're going to be on page 97 in that Bible this morning. It's that black-covered book in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to have that Bible. It's our gift to you. You can take that with you. But we'll be on page 97. Now, this morning, I don't have a PowerPoint uh, for you. I don't have a keynote presentation for you there. Uh, But it'll be really simple. There's going to be three points to follow along. It'll be a shorter message this morning. Um, because we're also going to observe communion uh, at the end. We need a time of reflection uh, during that time, but also uh, following uh, communion, we're going to have that family uh, business quarterly meeting, as I mentioned. And so um, it'll be a little bit shorter message today. All right? Nobody say amen. All right. Now, last week I mentioned to you, <laughs> what did you say, Joe? Praise the Lord. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Uh, you can always tell who the, the guy that has the pot roast at home and the, and the slow cooker. doesn't want to get all rubbery and overcooked. All right. Um, so today we're going to take chapters 19 through, chap- through Revelation all together in one setting just because of that. No. I like that we can mess around with each other, have fun together. Last week, do you remember I introduced to you a friend of mine named Adel? Remember that? You guys remember where Adele worked? Works? Pepsi. Okay, good. 
She works at Pepsi. Now, I use this as an illustration to help us, to get us to think through. And it was a silly illustration. And the illustration, you'll see in the conclusion when we get there today, how the, you'll see how the, how the illustration breaks down. I'll, I'll fess up to that at, in the conclusion. But it gets our mind, it jogs our minds. It gives us a little bit of a, a silly way to look at um, our relationship um, with Christ, with Jesus. You see, Adele doesn't go to work. She works for Pepsi. She doesn't go to work with a Coke shirt on, does she? That wouldn't make sense. She wears a Pepsi shirt because that's who she is, because that's what she's about and that's who she represents. She does so naturally and she does so willingly and readily because of the wonderful relationship that she has. Here's the point. Because of the love of God for us, because of the love of God for you, that He has for you. Because of that wonderful relationship, and by the way, that's a relationship that we don't deserve. But because of these things, we should willingly and we should naturally and joyfully display that relationship. We, we should, in a way, wear our Pepsi shirt. Make sense? What that relationship looks like is the subject of these last chapters of Leviticus. We saw the foundation in the first 16 chapters. Chapter 17 was pivotal because it talked about life being represented in the blood. All of that pointing towards Jesus, which makes holy living, unique living, set-apart living possible. And that's the subject of, of chapter 18 through the end of the book. Now, specifically, we're in chapters 18, 19, and 20, the Ten Commandments are all mentioned or at least alluded to in some way, shape, or form. That's the method or the reason why I've had the last three weeks the men read Exodus 20. Because I want the repetition of the Word of God to penetrate our hearts and our minds and the Lord to use it and to draw us to repentance and confession if there's areas where we don't measure up. And if you're like me, I'm a breaker of all Ten Commandments. Some way, shape, or form. Maybe not physically or outwardly, but in my heart. I'm a breaker of the Ten Commandments. Or as I like to say, I tell my teen- the teenagers in my Bible class something, we're all a bunch of mom sassers. Aren't we? We've all sassed our mother. And we're guilty. So that's where we are, and that's with the study uh, of, of where we are. If, if you're just coming in or haven't been here, and it, you know, it means something to be a Christian. What does it mean? What does that look like? And that's the subject that we're talking about here. Just, ten, just a few months ago, pre- previous to when this, the events of Levit- Leviticus are lived out, Just a few months before that, God graciously gave them the Ten Commandments as a guide to what that relationship looks like. By the way, it was not to earn a relationship, because remember, the covenant had already been given. These were the, these were, this is what that looked like. So these are not connected in that sense. The covenant with God, the relationship had already been given. This is what I'm going to do. And it was a, you know, it was a, a a one-way covenant. God said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to provide for you a great rescue. I'm going to do this for you. And then the day-by-day living looked like the Mosaic Covenant, the Ten Commandments. And so just a few months before, he had given them this to demonstrate what that relationship looked like. Chapter 
18 address what it looked like in our marriages. Our marriages should be defined by faithfulness. But it's a struggle for us. Not just physically, but in our hearts. Because Jesus says in the New Testament, if we look at men, if we look at a woman to lust after her, in our hearts we're guilty of what? Adultery. Not just men, but women can do this as well. They can be unfaithful to their husbands, specifically emotionally. Our marriages, although they're imperfect, should strive to be beautiful pictures of God's covenant loyalty. Shouldn't they? Last week we addressed how, as John Calvin said, our hearts are idle factories. I think that's a great way to put it. Our hearts are just a bunch of, our heart is a great big idol factory. And anything that we love more than Jesus is an idol. And again, men, this idolatry, because we lead our families, the things that we allow to influence us men are the things that will influence us. I remember I I said that to you last week. What we allow to influence us are the things that are going to influence us and our families. So we need to be careful. In Deuteronomy, we need to take care that we... That we, what we allow to influence us. And then we need to keep hold of the truth. We need to shepherd weld our own hearts, man, and our wives, and our children. And if you're not there yet, or if you're single, or if you never will be there, then you need to shepherd well your own heart and those that are around that you have the opportunity to influence. This is a universal thing. Our homes, although imperfect, should strive to be homes where we're all living sacrifices for Jesus. All of us. And so today we're going to continue that study of what the relationship looks like. It should look like this in a marriage, faithfulness, chapter 18. Chapter 19, we looked at the first eight verses. It should look like between us and between God, starting it with our young families, men, how we shepherd in those, our hearts, uh, shepherd the hearts in our homes towards people, towards God. But not only that, today's subject is what does holy living, set-apart living, what does a relationship look like as believers between us and each other? Between, uh, between, what, between us and maybe the people at our works, the different places we work, or our neighbors. What did those relationships look like? And I'm going to give you three broad things. I'll make very few or maybe just one application but the spirit that indwells you perhaps will allow, uh, will give you broad applications with these three main um, things that, that this relationship would look, uh, should look like, okay? So that's the track for this morning. First of all, what does this holy living look like between each other? It looks like thoughtfulness. First of all, it looks like thoughtfulness. All right? Look at verse 9 and verse 10. Let's read these together. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. Verse 10. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. The context of these verses, obviously, it's a society that was very agrarian. Now, that's not our culture here today. Nobody here, at least that I'm, unless, unless you're visiting and I don't know you that well, but nobody here that I'm aware of, their main source of income and livelihood is a farm. 
this was the culture in which uh, this was written. It was very agrarian. And so they needed their farms to survive. And so if you, uh, when harvest time came, if you were a person who had the means to have enough land to harvest and could pay workers to harvest your field, um, you were very blessed. And um, God asked you, based on these two verses here, were, He asked you to be thoughtful for two other people. In verse 9, as the farmers harvested, they were to leave the edges or the corners of their fields alone. You ever been, ever been uh, driving down, maybe as you're going, uh, like between between Columbus and going to southern Ohio, like if I'm on my way back to Virginia or something to visit family or uh, South Carolina to visit family, or if I'm going north, uh, like up to go steelhead fishing or something like that up near the, one of the rivers, and you you drive through this beautiful farm country, don't you? And when they when they harvest this, every once in a while, you'll see those those big, huge, amazing tractors, those big John Deere's, right? And they've got those big look, finger-looking things, and they're going through the field, and they're harvesting the field. And every once in a while, you'll see them. They'll, they'll cut the field off, and in the corner of the field, there'll be like a whole bunch of stalks of corn left or something. This is the idea of what... Now, they don't do it intentionally today. But this is the idea of what uh, God had in mind. So as these folks are harvesting this, these fields, they were to intentionally leave edges and corners, and maybe ridges, or different places where they would not harvest the field. Why? They were not even allowed to go back over the fields and pick up what fell in the process. Here's the reason why. Many of the folks in this culture at this time needed this blessing and this food to even survive. They were dependent upon it. Now, some of you, especially you, really strong Republican-minded folks, think, well, you know, I should, it's my field, I should be able to harvest all that I want to harvest, you know, I did it, that's just capitalism, that's just the way that it is, and, you know, shame on them for not working hard and whatever. And that, there might, there might be some truth, but this point here in this text is, some as known even, not even on their own fault. Maybe that this, the way they're, they're born into something because of decisions of their parents. And maybe some, uh, some people had made bad choices and consequences. But the point is this. Is that they were to be a blessing to other people no matter what circumstances or the reasons for the circumstances in their life. They were to be thoughtful to others. And this thoughtfulness looked like this. God was encouraging Israel to have a heart of love, of thoughtfulness, expressed in generosity. God was encouraging Israel to have a heart of love expressed in generosity. As these folks received the fruits of these crops, you know what was really possible for them to do? I mean, put yourself back in their shoes. Just think about how they had to live. They're struggling to make ends meet. Maybe they have some traps out, they have some snares out, and they're catching food as they can. Maybe a guy does a, does a good hard day's labor and he gets paid very little bit for it, but just enough to maybe survive, to get enough food in his belly to, to be able to work the next day in his family. And then every once in a while when they have this harvest time and these different harvests, and they would harvest different crops at different times of the year, he needed that stuff to survive. And as he gathers that stuff up, isn't it just possible 
that he could be standing there and think, wow, man, that is so kind of these farmers. I mean, they're the ones that put in all the work. They're the ones that paid the people to do it. They're the ones that own the land. And yet, you know what they do? This nation of Israel, because it was even for foreigners. This nation of Israel, man, they really are very generous people. Hmm. I wonder why they're so generous. I wonder what makes them do that. Because that's not normal. In our culture today, in our culture today, we're taught to look out for number one, aren't we? We're taught to look out for ourselves, to get ours at any cost even. And so God pushes back back against that thought process. He pushes back against that kind of heart. He says, no, I want you to be people that are thoughtful. And that looks like being generous in this context. This is what our lives as believers should look like towards others, friends. And as we're thoughtful to others, you know what that could do? That can make Jesus big to them. Hey man, why is this, why, why is my neighbor just, why does he bring me plates of cookies? That's kind of weird. People just don't do that anymore. Well, why, why does he just mow my lawn? Why, why does my, the guy in the neighbor, or, or the cubicle next to me, why is he so kind? And why does he like bring me back a cup of coffee when he goes on his break to Starbucks? And he brings me one too, and I didn't even ask. Why? Why, why, why? There's something different about that person. Hmm, I wonder what it is. And as we're thoughtful to others, we make Jesus big to them, even if they don't know it's Jesus. They will, and they can perhaps find out. So my question to you is, are you a thoughtful, are you a generous believer? Notice at the beginning of verse number 10, it says, And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. A heart that desires to strip bare opportunities to be thoughtful to others is not a heart that reflects upon the generosity of Jesus. So how's that going for you? Be generous to other people. Don't strip bare opportunities that God gives you. The second thing that we look at here, the second thing that holy living looks like, it looks like not just thoughtfulness or generosity, but it looks like honesty. Number two, it looks like honesty. Look with me, if you will, at verse 11 and verse 12. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. Now, there's a lot packed in those verse, in these verses here. Quite a few, like three of the commandments are here. Potentially four. I think one's alluded to. But the point is here is that life looks like, between each other, looks like a life of honesty. Not dishonesty. Now, you guys have heard me telling myself before when I stole that candy bar, right? You guys remember that story? I stole that candy bar when I was a, was a teenager, and I had to go back, and um, I told you the story about Ray Precourt. It was that, the Dolan's Variety Store it was the, the store that I worked at, and I was in 11th and 12th grade. And they had the greatest sandwich I've ever had in my life. Better than even Martone's, no matter what my brother says. Dolan's was the best sandwich ever. And I got to work there, and it was, oh, it was so good. And the, and the owner, Ray, um, and we had seafood, and, we, and it was catering, too. It was a wonderful place to work. And uh, I remember uh, as I 
as I was worked there for quite a while, Ray then started trusting me because I was different than the other people in the, in the, in the uh, there was six or seven, a couple of UVM, Vermont, University of Vermont students, and all they cared about was taking beer uh, back to their dorm room, and so they would never pay for it, and they'd just take it. And he, he, he knew it and stuff. And, but yet here was me, and I was a pretty honest guy. He even started trusting me to go to the bank. Here, take the deposit to the bank. Well, I took advantage of that. And uh, every, every so often, he would say, hey, Matt, pick something out of the seafood, um, the seafood display there that you want. Take it home. And, man, I love seafood. I, scallops, oh, my goodness. Lobster, oh, my goodness, my goodness, twice. Just so, so good. And uh, so because of his generosity to me, his kindness to me, and I would close at the store sometimes at night by myself, every once in a while... I would uh, justify in my mind, you know what, he's, he's just going to tell me to take one home anyway. Or he would tell me, ah, it doesn't really matter. But he never gave me permission. And so on top of the times that he allowed me to, I helped myself to quite a bit. It wasn't until later on, uh, I was, uh, was in Virginia actually, and the Lord had brought that to my mind. And I was very convicted because I felt like in my heart that I was stealing so I had tried to figure out, took some time, I tried to figure out about how much in lobsters and scallops, mostly lobsters I had taken, I figured it to be about maybe $100. And so I did some research and I found, Dolan's has closed down since. But I found out um, uh, where Ray was. And I found him and I searched him out and I called. And there's two, his dad was Ray too. And so I called him and I said, hey, is this Ray Precourt? Yes, it is. Is this Ray Precourt? Who owned Dolan's Variety Store on in Vermont and Burlington? Yep, this is him. I said, my name is Matt Vanderwalker. And before I could say, do you remember me? He said, oh, hey, Matt, how are you? He remembered me, uh, remembered me very well. So we chit-chatted a little bit about his kids. And then I said, Ray, the reason I'm calling is, is because God's doing a work in my heart. And if you remember, I told you I was a believer. He goes, yes, I remember, because we had some good discussions, he and I. And I said, I've been convicted. I, was, I stole from you. Dead silence. And I said, look, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to make it right. If you want to turn me in, that's fine. I said, I figure it to be about $100 worth of stuff that I took you to seafood. And I explained to him what I just explained to you about his generosity and that I would help myself. And I said, With, I'm going to double that. I said, I have a check written right here for 200 bucks. I just need your address because I need to make it right. And so he, um, he said, Matt, I really appreciate that. And then we discussed, um, we discussed the, the outcome of what was going to happen there. But it, but it was not easy. It was not comfortable. I wondered. I wondered what he was going to do. Vermont Free Press headlines. Pastor from Virginia stole when he was younger. Stole lobster. Lobster stealing pastor, you know. And I'm thinking, oh, great, you know, the church I'm at is going to throw me out in my head, which they would have probably, you know, so on and so forth. I remember sharing that with a group of, with my church in Virginia. I was doing a, I was doing a life group to a combined group, and it was a, a group of a couple hundred adults and just the life group class that we had. And as I'm talking, and then afterwards, uh, uh, an older, older than me lady named Elizabeth came up to me. And she said, hey, I need to talk to you. And I said, okay. And, and so we were in my office, and she said, hey, look, when I was in my 20s, I stole some clothing from uh, a, a clothing store. 
and back where I lived. And she says, it's been haunting me all these years. And I said, I know exactly the feeling. And she says, I want to make it right. So I told her what I did, and I said, let's do it. And I'll help you, whatever you want. So she wrote a check. She mailed it to the company, told her what she had done. And she made things right with them. And she made things right with God. You know, not stealing is a, is a well-known command here. And we generally practice it. But sometimes, perhaps maybe even now, we look back over our lives and we say, you know what? I borrowed something without permission. Isn't that how we kind of couch it? Oh, Ray's going to be nice to me anyway. I'll just take the lobster now and not wait till he gives it to me next week. Stealing, then, and we shall not steal. We shall not deal falsely in our dealings in life. Stealing speaks horribly, really, about who God is, doesn't it? When we steal, we're saying that we're not satisfied with what God has given us. We're also saying that God can't provide to me what I need in life. I've got to have it, so I'm going to take it no matter what. It really speaks really poorly about who our God is. Is it possible even for somebody who knows that we've stolen, maybe somebody that we stole with in the past, to think, man, that guy calls himself a Christian? I don't want anything to do with a God like that. Building on this stealing pro- prohibition in verse number 11 there is this idea of those that who, who stole would be tempted to lie and deceive and to cover up their wrongdoing. Sometimes they would even invoke non- God's name. Like in our modern culture, we would say, I swear to God I didn't do it. Brothers and sisters, a life that is holy, a life that looks like a Pepsi t-shirt in my silly illustration, a life that loves God isn't characterized by dishonesty between each other. And there are other, if the, there are other ways that we can make application to this. But I think one of the... An older man told me one time, he said to me, you know, Matt, one of the, I think one of the greatest issues that, that we have is that we walk around as believers with unconfessed sin. And if we would just confess our sin, he is faithful and just. And you would say, you're sitting there in your seat today, and you'd say, but you don't know what I've done. My friend, you don't know what I've done. But we both know who God is. He's a good, forgiving, loving God. And if the Holy Spirit is bringing back something to your head, to your heart right now that you've done, be thankful that God is still pursuing you with that. He won't let you go. And may you get it right and love him back by making it right with whoever you need to make it right. You say, I'm sc- talk to me. I had a long legal pad list of things I had to make right. I even stole from my own mother. That was the hardest of them all. And I can help you through it if you ever are interested. Finally this morning, holy living looks like thoughtfulness. Expressed in generosity to other people. It looks like honesty, but also it looks like justness. Being just with each other. Justness is an older word. We don't really use it. Maybe a more modern word we would say would be decency. In our vernacular, we're decent to each other. We find this in verse 13 through verse number 16. Read with me if you will. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. 
You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. As we work through these verses, verse 13 says, We may not oppress another by keeping what is rightfully theirs. Remember this agrarian society, and sometimes they lived just day by day to make ends meet. Nor may we take advantage of those who are less, who have physical challenges, like in verse number 14. My wife, our family is uh, right now, we're going through, speaking of verse number 14, where it says, uh, it says there, don't curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. We're, our family right now is we're going through uh, Little House on the Prairie. Ever watch Little House on the Prairie? <laughs> Some of you are like, what, what's that? Um, younger people. Uh, if you watch Little House on the Prairie, it's from a different, completely different world, really. Um, and it's a world that I, you'd ask my wife, it's a world I wish that I lived in. I think it would be just like, like the coolest time to be alive, right? No cell phones, a lot of hunting, um, a lot of fishing, and working with your hands. It's just a really cool society at the time. So this is, uh, it, it's Little House on the Prairie. It's life uh, of a family back in the late 1800s. And uh, after the Civil War, and they're living, and uh, they're in, uh, it was, they're in a few places, but they're in Wisconsin, and uh, they're living off of, on Plum Creek. And as they, as they go, one of these uh, episodes, their daughter Mary, who becomes blind, is working at a blind school with her husband at the time, and uh, they have to close the blind school, and they have to move back to, they're going to move back to Walnut Grove or there's a place there for them to have the blind school. It's a boarding school, so all the kids can go with them and, and, uh, as they go. Well, Mr. Ingalls, Charles Ingalls, the main character, Michael Landon, goes back to the town of Mankato to get them. And as he goes back in with his team of horses and his buggy, uh, he walks in and he says to uh, the son-in-law, he says, hey, where is the, uh, you said you got a horse and buggy. And he says, oh, yeah, they're right outside. And Mr. whatever his name is, Mr. the, the main dude in the town, he told me they were the best. And so uh, the guy with Charles, his name is Joe Kagan, Joe goes out, and Joe goes out to the um, horse and buggy, and <laughs> you can see the ribs on the horse. I mean, the horse is just like malnutrition. I mean, it's just too really bad a horse. And then also you can, the buggy has just fallen apart. And... What had happened was, is the main man in town that they had traded stuff with and paid for had taken advantage of them because they were blind. Had given them really bad horses and told them that they were the best. And so I love how Joe Kagan and Michael Landon, uh, Charles Ingalls, they go back into the saloon where this guy is and right there publicly they say, they, they walk the two horses into the saloon, which is pretty funny. And then they walk him in, and, they, and he says, hey, and the guy comes out, and he says, what are you doing? And he gets all mad, and the guy says, um, or Charles Engel says, you know, this fearless leader of the town who owns all this stuff, stuff the guy that, that you buy all your whiskey from, um, he's an honest and upright guy, you know, kind of turns the tables on him, and he would never do this, especially to poor blind people. And then, he, you know, he says, what do you do? if he would do this, wouldn't this be horrible? And they're all like, oh, yeah, you know. And the guy gets embarrassed, and he says, go pick out the two best horses in the stable and the new buggy. And so they're able to do, to do that. This is the story that comes to mind. 
Now, we don't live in a culture like that. None of us came in our horse and carriage this morning, although we might have liked to have done that, right? (laughs) Some of you are laughing and some of you are like, I thought you liked Ferraris. I do. I just, I'm schizophrenic. I don't know. It just depends on which day. Yeah, I, you know, uh, I like those too. But we have advantage in our hearts. Here's the point in our hearts. When we have the opportunity to take advantage of somebody, our hearts, our selfish hearts want to do that. They want to rob the blind. They want to say, we're going to give you the best and all of it. It's just nothing but a horse that you can see the ribs. Now, that looks different in our culture, but our hearts are the same, aren't they? Verse 15 tells us that we may not be unjust. On the one hand, we may not allow somebody, we would say in our culture, to get away with murder because they have everything, because they're rich. But on the other hand, we can't just look the other way because they're not rich. We need to be a people who are just. Verse 16 addresses this corruption and this vengeance. And to understand verse 16 where it says, you not go around and slander among your people, you not stand up against the life of your neighbor, the scholar Gordon Wenham is really helpful here as he helps us to understand the culture. And he says this, if one went into court in ancient Israel, one's judges would be the elders of the village. In the intimate atmosphere of the local trial, it would be particularly easy for the neighbors to let their feuds and their personal animosities distort the proceedings. Because their buddies were the one most likely that were going to decide their fate. And so as these animosities, these influences, uh, they, would, they could influence the truth. They could the, the way that a person adjudicated an issue. In their hearts, they could have said, I told them, and I'll get even with them. And so now, even though they might be innocent, I'm going to get even with them. This all goes back to the heart. And these verses describe a heart of selfishness, desiring to oppress and rob and take advantage and do injustice and slander towards other people. And my friends, the common thought through all, the common thread through all of these is that we should not be like this, but we should be decent towards one another. We should be just towards one another. We cannot survive. We cannot operate. We cannot function even as a society if we're not decent towards each other. The way we, we speak truth And we treat other people, speaks volumes about who our God is. And again, why would a person want anything to do with your God if you were not fair or equitable or decent or just? May I remind us in conclusion in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Bible tells us this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old man has passed away, and behold, the new one has come. And this is from God, who through Christ, through Christ, he reconciled us to himself, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God, we are reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And then this ministry of reconciliation is entrusting to us the ministry of Jesus Christ, of reconciliation. Therefore, because of this, because of what God has done for us, because of how we're to live through each other, I implore you, we should be ambassadors of Christ, making this appeal to us, that on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him, that is Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin. So that way we might gain the righteousness that comes through Christ. 
Friends, God has rescued us and He has brought us into an amazing relationship with Him. And I hope you never get over that. That's the beauty of the gospel. And I'll never get tired of reminding you of that week after week. Because we need to remember that we are in Christ. And we need to remember what Christ has done for us. He's freed us from the power and the penalty of sin. Of these sins. Of being not generous. Of being unthoughtful. Of being unjust. Of being indecent. And then we demonstrate that relationship in the godlike way that's described here. In the unique way that God himself lives out. And not only does he desire to free us, but then in our holy living, to live like that, but in our holy living, as verse 20 says, that we'll be ambassadors. And as ambassadors, we should demonstrate what reconciliation looks like. That's how we're to live. Through Jesus, He became sin for us, so that way we could tell others about that. Isn't that a glorious, but also a sobering responsibility? And so ask yourself this morning, is your life displaying honesty, decency, and thoughtfulness towards other people? Towards people in this room? Towards your neighbors? Towards your fellow human citizen? It's a lot to think about this morning, but I hope that you do. This morning, we are going to recognize the glorious truth of reconciliation through the remembrance of the words of the last meal that Jesus had and he ate before his death. We call it the Last Supper. Today, we call it communion. And this great gift of reconciliation was made possible through the atonement, that thing that makes us right with God, that thing that allows us to live holy lives because of what's done on the inside. And that's where the illustration kind of breaks down, right? When I say, hey, make sure you're wearing the Jesus t-shirt or make sure you're wearing the Pepsi t-shirt, that's an external thing. But we know the truth that Christ, through what Christ has done, He's given us new hearts and the work is done on the inside and that inside should come out. And so this morning, because of what God's done on the inside, through this shedding of the blood and His death on the cross, the giving of Himself, we're going to celebrate this great gift 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 28 asks us, as we reflect in this great gift through the bread and the juice this morning, 1 Corinthians 11, 28 asks us to examine ourselves. First of all, you need to examine yourself to see if you're trusting in Christ alone to rescue you from your sin and reconcile you to God. And if you're not, then don't partake this morning. We practice open communion. You might not be a covenant partner with us here, but if you're a believer, we invite you to reflect upon the, and celebrate with us the great reconciliation between us and God. Only if you're a believer. And if you're a believer, you need to examine yourself to see if your life is a life that has been reflected a change from the inside, a change of heart, a change because of what Jesus has done. And while we'll not be perfect until our full salvation comes someday, our lives should reflect a life changed by Jesus. And if your life hasn't been reflecting that, now is the time of personal searching, personal confession, and repentance. And if you confess your sin, as I said earlier, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. And guess what? Restore unto you the joy of that salvation you have. So I'm going to ask the men to come forward, and we pass out how we do it here is we pass out both elements at once, and you have them both. And so as they come forward, you spend this next time. The ladies are going to play through 
you'd spend some time in confession and repenting and searching of your heart as we pass, pass these out. And then we'll come back together. I'll read a passage, and then we'll reflect upon these. Men, you come forward now.